Today on the podcast, we're having a conversation about, take a deep breath, stress. My guest is speaker and author Luke Mathers, and he told me that stress can actually be a good thing, maybe even a superpower, if we don't let it stick to us. Today, I give him a call to explore how we can lead ourselves better in the area of stress. Joining me on the phone is Luke Mathers, author of Stress Teflon. With 28 years in business, he's learned that stress is not going away anytime soon and that if we want to have better health relationships and success, we need to get better at how we handle stress. As one of the original directors of Specsavers in Australia, Luke was part of the biggest retail rollout in Australia's history, 100 stores in 100 days. His practice was the biggest in the country and set global records that were previously unheard of. Luke retired for the first time at age 31. After transforming his UK Specsavers practice by increasing turnover 350% in just three years, Luke returned to Australia to relax and put his feet up, but it wasn't too long before he realized he missed something, stress. Now he's on a mission to help people become stress Teflon and to reset stress. Through his keynote speeches, workshops, and coaching, he helps people turn threats into challenges. And as the book says, it's good being you when stress doesn't stick. Luke Mathers, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Good to be here. I feel like you've got a wrong number if you're ringing me, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I'm sure we'll have a good chat anyway. Not at all. I, I, I've actually surprisingly um, had you on my hit list of people. We, we crossed paths. I mean, it must have been probably even close to 18 months, a little bit more ago. And you gave me a copy of your book, Stress Teflon. And it was must have been about the same time I just started my podcast and I had no idea what I was doing when it came to running a podcast. Now it's kind of 18 months later. Still don't know what I'm doing with a podcast, but I'm really, really excited to have you on to have a good chat. It's one of the good things about podcasts. You don't actually have to know what you're doing. You know, podcasts are like assholes. Everyone's got one now, so it doesn't really matter. You can do it You can do it pretty easily whether you've got a clue or not. Oh, that's that's reassuring. Hey, one of the things I, I do if people listen to the podcast for a while, we kick off with three fast facts just to kind of get to know you a little bit, which is where were you born? What was your very first job? And then what do you do now? Um, I was born in Melbourne. I moved to Queensland when I was about nine or 10. So I'm a Queenslander born in Melbourne. I'm a, I'm a fellow Queenslander right here. Yeah. First job has zero credibility whatsoever. I worked at best and less. Okay. So back in the eighties, which was really dodgy. My second job was more exciting. I, I worked at Dreamworld and used to guess people's weight, which was pretty cool. I had to dress up like a cowboy and get people to come over and guess their weight. And uh, that one was kind of cool. You kind of had to turn it, turn it into a bit of theater and have some fun. So I, I kind of, I, I should go with that as my first job because yeah. it's way cooler. It is, it is really cool. Um, so were you guessing their weight or were they guessing your weight? What, how did that work? Uh, you you kind of do both. You'd, you'd guess theirs. And, and most of the time though, because they won stuffed toys as little kids and they're all between you know, like 25 and 35 kilos. So it's pretty easy. Okay. Um, but then you get some some big unit pop in that you don't know whether he's 135 or 145 it gets a bit harder i feel like it's a really delicate job i feel like there's a there's a high degree of offense that could take place if you're really bad at your job so long as you're having fun it's uh, it goes all right so it, it was a pretty fun job to do that and then what do you do now I'm, I'm a business coach and speaker and and get out there and help teams get better at stress so that's kind of that's my gig i go into companies and and help people get better at stress it seems like a really relevant and appropriate topic given the last 18 months that we've all just yeah, been it through. Does, it? I think I'm guessing work's been going pretty well. Yeah, it has been. It's 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 a weird one. For a fair while there, they were too stressed to actually do anything about their stress, which yeah. is quite ironic. But but now they're kind of realizing, wow, there are there are things that we're where that are ruining performance. So yeah, you get a lot of people that are they're in this wellness space, and I can't even sell, say wellness properly without kind of you know getting a little bit of vomit come up in my throat. Yep. But yeah, I, I think you've got to be good at stress if you're going to perform and particularly if you're going to be a leader. Um, you've got to be able to be good at stress. You've got to be able to know where it comes from. You've got to be know, know how to deal with it. And probably most important, you've got to make sure you don't send it down the line, which is what our natural sort of tendency is, just to send stress down the line. 
Oh, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of like the impact and the consequences of stress. Like personal stress doesn't just impact the person. It shows up to every single person around them. Um, and it's it's kind of, I use this phrase, you know, that um, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's like when you're mm. stressed, you project that chaos onto everyone and everything around you. And it's such a damaging place to, to, to get in from what I've seen. Um, I'm really curious. I mean, why, how on earth did you get into dealing with stress? Like, why did you choose that as a topic of, of place to go down? Oh, mate, it's, it, do, you want the, do you want the long one or the short one? Well, we can, we can how it. interesting it's, is it's pretty, it? <laughs> I, the, the, the long one's kind of interesting, I guess. I, um, I retired for the first time at 31. So at 31 years of age, I'd, I'd moved to the UK. I owned a Specsavers store over there. I'm an, optom- an optometrist. I used to be an optometrist. Right. And so I tested eyes and I've asked which one's clearer, this one or that one, nine and a half million times. <laughs> All right. So if anyone in any workshop, any stress workshop or anything I do, when someone says my job's boring, I say, have you asked the same question nine and a half million times? No way you haven't. <laughs> I win. So I was an optometrist for a lot of years and I took over a really bad practice, made it really good in about three or four years, worked my ass off, like absolutely worked my worked my butt off. And at 31 years old, moved back to Australia and Aussie dollar was really low. They'd had a housing boom over there, sold my house, sold my business and replaced with one lotto. And so I'm like, this is cool. I'm gonna go surfing, I'm gonna play golf. I'm, um, my wife got pregnant around about the same time. So we had a baby around about this same time. So I'm 31 years old and thinking, you know, it's, awesome being me it's just great I'm loving life and worked out by about I think I got to about 12 or 18 months before I kind of started looking around and watching my friends doing really cool things with their businesses and just had that sort of you know that idea and it's one that's kind of stuck with me ever since that is the world a better place because you're in it Mm. and when you when you're hanging your self-worth on how well you can do a cutback in surfing or how well you hold three foot putts you know your self self-worth gets pretty tenuous and so i sort of worked out that one of the things i was well, i was missing was stress mm. and i kind of needed some things to fire me up and some challenges and some things that i actually really love reveling that i love leading teams and I, I loved running businesses so i ended up you know starting another business and then specsavers came to australia um back in 2008 and so when Specsavers came to Australia, um, I was one of the first on board with that and went around the country signing people up and we opened 100 stores in 100 days. Wow. All right, so if you look at, you know, if you've ever been with anyone opening a retail store, it's a pretty stressful gig. And we opened 100 stores in 100 days and we had, you know, we had deep pockets. We had a ridiculously talented team and I was the Aussie bloke that went around and said, you know, these guys aren't, these guys are good blokes. This is going to be a good thing. Mm. And yeah, that was my job for a fair while, and yeah, That's so I ended up, um, yeah. So that that was great, and you know, people had never heard of Specsavers then. Mm. You, you kind of think of Specsavers now; it's just part of the furniture. It's like you know, BP or Coles or something like that. And it's it wasn't. We'd never heard of it in two thousand and eight. So it's only thirteen years ago, and now they've got you know the best part of fifty percent market share, and you know they've made tons of people you know really good living. So. Yeah, you know, they're they're a wonderful team to work with. Specsavers are great, um, and got to and I don't know if you, you get this from some of your other guests, but I had that kind of thing that particularly young blokes, without trying to sound sexist, young blokes tend to get on a train, and they kind of say, "This is where I'm going. This is what my goal is." You know, blinkers on, you know, dedication, and off we go. And I kind of went pretty early on. Well, if I'm going to have one of these practices again, I'm going to make sure mine's the best. <laughs> All right. And I was just, I want to be number one. I want to be number one. And that was the top of the mountain I was after. And I just wanted to be number one. Yeah. Do you get that with a lot of your, your guests that they kind of get, and they kind of get to the top of the mountain and go, eh, yeah, the view's all right. I definitely talk <laughs> to a lot of people of now, in but... terms of what they, I mean, more often than not, they're probably coming the opposite way around. They've got lots on their their plate. They haven't had time to reevaluate they, what they want. And then all of a sudden things quiet down a little bit and then they're forced introspectively and they start to reflect on their life and they've realized that they're already on a train down a particular track and haven't evaluated why they're on that train. So it's, it's a bit of a, you know, probably see both of those stories. Some people are like, I need to get on this train. I need to go in this direction. And they make that decision early. Other people, they find a, they find themselves halfway down the track and realize I'm probably on the wrong track and I need to change. Uh, so a bit of a mixture. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up, ended up going to my GP and at this stage, you know, 
my my marriage was great. I had, was making loads of money. Was just had the best store in the country, so we were killing it. You know, um, when we when Specsavers started, the best optometry practices in the country were doing about a million dollars a year. At this stage, my my practice was doing about six or seven. Wow. So that's that's a massive change. That's like you think look at changing a changing a you know whole a whole you know career and culture and all of that sort of stuff mm. to completely change how optometry works was huge. Mm. And but it was look, looked around and went to the GP and said, look, you know everything's great. My life's awesome. I'm really grateful for everything, but I'm just I'm just not fired up about much. And he asked me about three questions, none of none of which were overly insightful, and gave me a prescription for antidepressants. Wow. And I'm like, wow, okay. Then I'm, I don't know, we've only met once or twice, but I'm, I'm not someone you'd sort of think is someone that you'd, you'd need to give antidepressants to. I'm, I live in Lukeland and Lukeland's awesome. Everyone's <laughs> great. Everyone's wonderful. Yeah. Unicorns fart rainbows in Lukeland. <laughs> and, um, but I took the tablets and actually kind of fired up a little bit. It was like, oh, well, this is, this feels really good. And then went, well, why am I taking tablets? I'm going to work out what serotonin does. And so it was a, you know, Prozac's like a sex selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, just to use big words to make me sound special. <laughs> and so basically went in to find out what this serot- what this tablets did and went, just went down a massive rabbit hole of evolutionary bio- biology of, you know, why we have these chemicals and what these chemicals do and why am I taking an artificial one where if I go to work and put my heart and soul into it and really love what I'm doing, then I don't need to take that and I'm actually just going to love what I'm doing because I love what I'm doing. And it, it kind of changed my mindset and, and made me sort of work out what I wanted to do. And if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 100%, something that I love. Mm. I mean, I've got so many questions that sit around that um, understanding, you know, when you're in that stress place, what can we be doing for that? I mean, going back, just winding back a little bit, you said something which was quite astounding to me which was that you're in a stage of life where you're like I'm not getting enough stress and I, I wanted to go back and give myself some more I reckon there's a lot of people that are probably listening to this right now going hey Luke if you want to do a life swap I'm more than happy to swap I'll give you all my stress and you can come take on some of that um, more often than not that's the story that I hear so what what was it about the stress that you were looking for yeah well well we have there's sort of two types of stress there's the ones that that are there constantly and nagging away with you and book a room in your head and all of that sort of stuff we all know those ones we've all had those ones yeah all right but there's the other you know there's stress in everything that's worthwhile there's stress in it like i love surfing i love playing golf i love love you know i've been married for 20 whatever years and there's nothing more stressful than falling in love <laughs> it's like ridiculous. you know that that years ago when you wanted to go up and talk to some girl you had a crush on you know your whole body's doing cartwheels and all you're doing is asking her, you know, do you want to come and dance at a movie or something <laughs> you're just asking her some really trivial little things but your whole body's going doing loops about it and yeah, you know, so there's lots of really good stress that actually makes you feel alive. And I think what's happened with the way we talk about it now is stress has all been dumped into one bucket and it says stress is terrible. It's going to give you a heart attack. It's going to give you diabetes and obesity. You know, it's going to cause constipation and erectile dysfunction. Yeah, you know, but it doesn't have to. We've got to get, we've got to learn how to get good at it. Mm, I, I think, yeah, again, I think that's a helpful conversation for understanding how do I start to differentiate between what is good stress for me and what's not and what's not helpful stress for me. I mean, how how have you gone about understanding the role stress plays within our life? Like, where does it like where, where do we, if we were to peel back the layers of it from where's all this coming from in terms of like who we are as people um, and how we naturally tend to to bucket stress or deal with stress? It's a good it's a good way to say that how we naturally deal with it. Mm-hmm. And and that was part of the reason how I got into it was just to to look at the natural way we deal with it and what's the response that happens. And you know, you kind of got to keep taking it back. And I ended up going down this massive rabbit hole of evolutionary biology. I just love evolutionary biology and, and stuff happens in our body because it happened in a caveman's body when you saw a tiger rustle in the bush. You know, things like things like anxiety. I saw a a rustle in the bush and that might have been a prehistoric rabbit or it might have been a tiger we don't know Mm. but our body's reaction has to assume that it's a tiger because if we didn't assume it was a tiger and we thought it was a rabbit and it was a tiger we got eaten Mm. that makes sense yep so so we're kind of evolved to have that negative bias and to look at things as if they're going to be really bad and 
the hustle is that bias really served us well when there were tigers running around wanting to eat us. It doesn't serve us well when we work out, you know, whether a client's going to ring us back or whether we can pay the mortgage. It doesn't serve us quite so well in that situation, but we're getting a really similar physiological response. Mm. So we've got to work out a way to get some sort of some perspective and some cognitive control over that sort of stuff. And now the idea of stress Teflon is that stress is good. You just don't want to let it stick to you. You don't want to let it stay there all day long. I mean, I think about examples of when, you know, like I, I'm not a, a small guy. Like I, I feel like I can hold my own if I was to, you know, walk down the street and I'm, you know, obviously you know, being, I'm quite a privileged person being a man, being able to walk down the street. But if I'm walking down the street and, I, and I'm, it's kind of isolated and lonely and I see someone walking towards me, I don't care how big, small they are. If, if there's a moment of instinct that says this doesn't feel safe to me, my body reacts in a particular way. And it's like, it's almost like I can't seem to control that. And so, so much of it is seems to be hardwired into the way that we are as, as human beings. And so there's this element of you know, you said, you talked about the caveman biology, this hard wiring, this kind of um, software that's kind of in our body. This It feels like there's some things we can't change. So is it possible to change the, the hard wiring of it or is it our response to it? Like, how do you do it if it's, you know, so instinctive? Yeah. It's a great question. It's a great question. And it, they're kind of interesting, interesting sort of definitions aren't they like hardwiring and software yeah. and, and software and stuff and they're kind of a little bit similar because our brain you know for, to get really really simple on it kind of wires by the more you use it the more you use certain connections the more those the stronger those connections get it's just the way sort of neuroplasticity and works and as kids we we sort of you know run over the same things a few times we develop the habits and then we can do them so, you know, there's, there's stuff in there that is hardwired, but a lot of it just becomes our habitual way of thinking. I kind of I look at things like we look at personality as being something that's, that's just us, where we're, you know, this is Luke, I'm X, Y, and Z. And there's a lot of things in that that are actually choices that if we want to change that, we can. Our personality is just a bunch of thought habits. It's just the way we think. And we can change those, but we've got to do the work to change them. We've got to, you know, we get our, our, our brains are a bit like sort of water and electricity. They're going to take the path of least resistance. And mm-hmm. if that's what you've done before, that's going to be your path of least resistance. And if you want to, if you want to take a different path, you actually have to do some real work to be able to change it, but it's really, really doable, but you have to be, you have to have a vision of what you want to do and you have to actually really want to walk that different path mm-hmm. multiple times because it won't just happen overnight. It's something that takes a bit of work. Yeah, I often think about growing up in, you know, kind of Queensland, we'd often go out kind of bushwalking and places like that. And you would see certain pathways of people who were climbing the mountains before you or do the, do the trail before you. It starts off as these kind of overgrown pathways, but then as more and more tourists end up coming through, it, it by default wears in this kind of groove into the path and the track so that when you show up there, it feels like an easy kind of walk and, and pathway through. I, I could imagine it being our brains very similar, those kind of synaptic pathways that are forming originally would feel like it's it's hard work and it's intentionality but over time as you kind of keep reinforcing the habits that support that it would become more natural over time is that kind of what i'm hearing in terms of um that that's exactly what we're saying that that you can if you've been on a certain train and that's the way you thought is your default but that default's not actually helping you anymore mm. then we can work out well what would my deliberate way that would actually help me go and I'm going to take that way from now on. I'm going to attach a positive promotion to taking that way, even though it's a bit harder. But as I take that path more and more often, I've just built a different path in the forest that you were walking on that's actually where I wanted to go. If that yeah. path was going somewhere you didn't want to go, it's not really much good to you. Mm. And if you're not getting the results you want because of that habitual, we've got, to do, we've got to develop new habits. And I think there's a really cool way to look at it to say that you know, that William James idea that we're all mere bundles of habits mm is so true and what being a bundle of habits does it means well we do have some scope to change mm. you know the the shame from 2010 i don't think would be this this the same shame that we have in 2021 i really hope not <laughs> <laughs> that, that elaine de Botton idea that if if you're not embarrassed by who you were you know 12 months ago you, you're not trying hard enough i that, like that that sort of concept but you know there's a lot of those sort of things that we just do because we think that's what we do. Um, you know, you're from, you're from Queensland. There's a there's a road called the M1, which goes between the Brisbane and the Gold Coast. It's a big six-lane motorway. It's huge. 
you know, when I was when I was a kid, that was like one lane each way, and it had little sections for overtaking and stuff. It was a horrendous road. It took ages to get to Brisbane if the traffic was bad. But as you're driving to Brisbane now on this big six lane behemoth, if you look over to the over to the right, you can actually see the old M1. It's still there. But what the council's done is they've gone and made done the work and built the big beast. So we take the big beast now. But the other the other ones are still there. I used to have this idea, you know, that people that kind of blame their messed up life on stuff that happened when they were kids and stuff. I used to have this idea because I had a lovely childhood and you know, great parents are still together now, you know, 60 years on or whatever. And I had a great childhood and live in Luke land and all of that sort of stuff. And I used to say to these people, get, get over it. It's all right, just put it behind you. It was when you were a kid. And what I've kind of realized is how wrong I was that you can't just get over it because that stuff, you thought about it a hundred times or a thousand times mm. between then. And that, that pathway is still there, but you've got to build the one, you've got to build the big M1 next to it that, that's going to actually help that work. And working with coaching clients and stuff, that's, that's a, a hard exercise because you can't do that in, you know, one 45 minute session that, that, that takes some work and you've got to be wanting to will, willing to do the work, but it's doable. Mm. I, one of the things I, I'm sure you would probably see this as well, working with clients when, when you have conversations, people, you know, people have those breakthrough insight moments. And usually the insight moment that I see are the most powerful ones is when they recognize the old M1, when they start to see the other channel, the other pathway that they've been going on and they go, oh my gosh, this, this has been like my default way of thinking my entire life. And I've never once challenged it. And it's like a huge insight. And then their response is, so what do I do now? Like, what's what, what do I do? And I'm like, you realize like 80% of the work that needed to be done is just in that recognition that there was an old M1. Yeah. Now we work on to the process of building the new one. But I think um, for people who are listening, like first and foremost, starting to become more consciously aware of what are my default patterns of thinking around stress, about work, about, I mean, life in general, what are my kind of things that I've never even questions or questioned or challenged? Um, would they be a good place for people to even just as a starting point, start to think through? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question that you've got to, you know, it, it's going to start with awareness for sure. Mm-hmm. You've got to understand what you're doing and what you're getting out of it. I think it, and you can kind of then say, okay, we're going to step in and we're going to do this. I've got this habit loop now, this sort of default one. And God, I want to step out of it and I want to build another habit loop, which is my deliberate one that I really like. And that's a, it's a really cool concept. And, you know, you can do that. But you've got to throw something in the middle. I think you've got to throw a genuine disenchantment with the old way. Mm. You've, got to, you've got to generally look at the other way and say, you know, I don't want to be like that anymore. Mm. Um uh, one, one great example, I, I read a book recently called Sober Curious, uh, a lady called Ruby Warrington, an English lady who lives in New York. And, um, you know, I'm an Aussie bloke. I love footy. I love surfing. I love, you know, going to horse races and all of that sort of stuff. Right? And I love going out and having beers with my mates. And I used to be the one that, you know, if someone's good, more was better. Off we went. I'd only drink on weekends, but I'd probably drink more than I should have. And I started getting curious about it. Like, what am I getting out of that? Mm. All right. And I read Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, which had a really good chapter in it about drinking culture and, and all of that sort of stuff. And that he, he was telling us about the, what happens in your brain at certain alcohol levels. Like at 0.08, you start to lose short-term memory a little bit. And at 0.15, you, you black out completely and you don't remember the night. And it's kind of like why would I ever want to go above, above 0.08? So I kind of looked at that and my habit look was let's just drink all night because that's really fun. And then I kind of looked at it, well, what am I getting out of that? I can't really remember exactly what those conversations were about. I know I had fun, but that's about it. So now I'm, I'm, my mates all hang shit on me because I'm sober curious, which means I have, I have three or four beers and then I'm kind of done. Yeah. I might have one every couple of hours after that if I want to. If I don't, I don't. Because I just worked out I wasn't getting anything out of drinking more than that. So why would you drink more than that? And the beauty of that is when you throw that disillusionment in there, you've got to throw the disillusionment step in there. Because if you just go, I don't want to do that, then you're trying to change habits from a place of scarcity and a, a, a place of I'm not good enough and I've got a problem rather than a place of this is what I want to do. And when you do that, you take a lot of resistance away from habit change and it becomes less stressful and it becomes a bit easier. Mm. So let's talk about it then through the lens of like, let's look at those automatic pathways that are, are maybe pre-existing for people when it comes to their idea of stress, right? Because it would be it would be pre-existing because when some people, somebody heard you say before, you know, there's good stress and bad stress, 
some people wouldn't have even considered. They would just grouped all stress into bad, um, which is, again, mm. another one of those um, pathways. And so if we're going to kind of start to dismantle that thinking around it is we need to kind of remove some of the, you know, create a bit of disenchantment around stress being a bad thing. So, I mean, what would mm. be some of the things that you would help people to start to consider around stress that might start to, you know, maybe distance from that old way of thinking. Yeah, it's it's, it's a cool question. Um, one of the ones one of the ones you do is kind of work out some of the things that bring them joy. And mm. uh, you, you Marie Kondo them like, yeah, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. You look at some of the things that bring them joy, and yeah, you. Um, I love surfing. Um, I'm a really bad surfer. Like I'm terrible. Like um, there's a thing in surfing when you when you do a turn on surfing, you throw buckets of water out and uh you know you throw a big spray off the back of the wave as you as you turn and re-enter the wave um my nickname is buckets because <laughs> the the joke is that i throw buckets of water and i just don't i'm absolutely hopeless <laughs> my surfing nickname right. is drowning um because that's usually what takes place <laughs> yeah, when i right. surf <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm a really really enthusiastic but really bad surfer and surfing's stressful you know i've surfed in in fiji and hawaii and stuff where it's like double overhead and it's big and i'm shitting myself but I still want to do it. Mm. I still really want to be out there. And you, you know, you, you pull into a barrel or something like that on the rare occasion that I actually do something good. And there's just no greater joy. And we can't have that really supreme, awesome joy without the getting your ass handed to you a few times and without some of the bad bits and stuff. And if we, you know, the, the one thing that can happen if we start to look at stress as being this awful thing is we don't actually take on any challenges. We don't take any, anything that's hard. And then we don't actually get any achievement. So you end up sort of, there's a phrase I use called an agitated squiggle. And an agitated squiggle, that's someone that's stuck on a certain step and they haven't been able to get up onto the next step. Mm. And if you don't embrace some stress and take on some challenges and be okay to fail, mm. then you end up just stuck in this one place and live this apathetic, boring life that's absolutely horrendous so we've got to be able to take on the things that that are stressful and hard and but treat them like a challenge not a threat and i think that's there's a thing i talk about in stress teflon about the fork in the stress road that there's always a, a place where it diverges and it can be a threat or it can be a challenge and if we look at if we look at something like surfing big waves that's massively a challenge if we look at other things and you know we we have a really toxic boss that just feels like a threat all the time and that that sort of stress sticks to you challenge stress doesn't stick to you you don't wake up at night and think oh no my god i i had to climb a mountain yesterday mm. you went up and said yeah i climbed a mountain it was cool and the stress goes away so that's the idea of stress teflon that the stress doesn't stick to you Mm, I, I love it. similar sense that I, I wrote something recently around the idea of leadership pain. And, you know, I, one of the things I found about people who are in really expansive influence roles, high influence roles, they generally have a really high pain tolerance because leadership is painful. You know, people disappoint you, they let you down. Um, and yet, mm. if you look at the journey that people got to really significant roles of influence, they seem to be able to manage that pain and kind of withstand a lot of that pain a lot a lot easier than, than people in that journey. And so one of the things I talked about in the progress of becoming, you know, more expansive in your influence of leadership is developing that kind of pain threshold and um, in, in one sense not allowing pain to hurt you but then distinguishing between the pain of um, you know the leadership pain that comes from disappointment or feeling let down and the pain of injury which is like something that's actually harmful to you and being able to differentiate between those two so similar thing do you think there is a your brain struggles with that though doesn't it the, it, it does trying to manage those two tensions of like how do I know when something's hurting me or when something's actually good for me and I was going to ask like with stress is there a like a threshold or is there an ability to be able to handle more of stress is it something you can expand your capacity on i definitely think you can mm. yeah you, you we all we all have a stress bucket and you know i started doing all this probably 2016-17 um and doing a lot of work with stress and when you write a book about stress everyone come, comes and talks to you about stress and in 2019 everyone's stress bucket was full mm. All right, and and what happens with stress is if you if you don't have any, you don't have to get off the couch, you don't have any reason to do anything, and you're bored like I was back, you know, when I was you know in my early thirties, and and your stress bucket then is just it's just empty and there's nothing to, nothing to motivate you. So stress is there for motivation and it's there for preservation. Mm. It's kind of there for two reasons: it's there to get you fired up and get you moving, and it's there to make you quit before everything gets too much. And what's happened is everyone's stress bucket was pretty full in 2019. And then welcome along COVID. Yeah. And 
we actually have a bigger capacity than we give ourselves credit for. We've actually dealt with it really, really well. And we've over, there's a whole bunch of things that have happened that people have actually been way better off. Like, you know, playing Monopoly with your kids and, mm-hmm. and sort of, I, I know myself, I've kind of looked at shit I used to think was important and I want to go and buy this and I want to have that. I couldn't give a shit about it anymore. Could not care less. Mm. And that was one of the things that had happened as a, as a result of COVID, that you've changed your perception of stuff. And sometimes it's almost like that Nassim Tlaib and another friend of ours, Paige Williams, wrote a thing called Anti-Fragile. Mm. And becoming anti-fragile, Paige Williams talked about it, had to, you know, you get that by being able to ride through those, those tougher times and, and actually make your stress bucket bigger so you can actually, you quit later. Mm. So how then, how are you starting to, uh, distinguish the stress that's not helpful, the kind of stress that'll stick to you and that doesn't serve you. Yeah, the, the, it's, that's the hard one because yep. the hassle with that is it's usually time. It's usually the amount of time it's booking a room in your head. Mm. You know, uh, my mother-in-law has a, a phrase that if something's renting a room in your head for free, then yep. then that's a fair sign that you've got something that's a little bit toxic and you've got to learn how to how can I do that? My, my new book actually is, it's called Reset, which is, that's it there. Amazing. And, and one of the things about, about Reset is I, a, a friend of my daughter's, Ali, um, Ali Shorter is her name, and I wrote it with her, and they had a friend um, take her own life with suicide when they were in grade 10, so about three years ago. And I wanted to write a book that was kind of the upstream version of Stress Teflon to be able to get... You know, there's a there's a African pop proverb made famous by Desmond Tutu said at some stage you've got to stop pulling people out of the river and go upstream and find out find out where they fell in, mm. and um, I kind of thought that I could do that with a, with a book and I got Ali to write it with me because she'd been through this, and we kind of just wanted to teach people how to coach themselves so that thing when your stress bucket's full how can I coach myself through that, and we came up with a few ways of of doing that. So to be able to sort of work out that this ruminating that I'm doing now is not serving me, again, get that disenchantment with that. So how do I step out of that? How, do, how can I do that? And we came up with a few tools for doing that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be super fascinated to hear. Um, I mean, because I'm just kind of reflecting the conversation so far is like, is number one, like recognizing that stress isn't all bad it's not just one collective word stress that we use to talk about the good you know to talk about bad stress but there's actually stress that helps us to be able to to step up and step out of where we are into kind of what's next but being aware that in order to be able to differentiate that we've got to undo some of the hard wiring or some of the wiring that we have around what we believe stress's role is in our life and so distinguish between the good and the bad stress and and make sure that the bad stress isn't sticking to us i mean more at a practical level if we were to look at some of the things that even you talked about in reset even just like one or two of those big ideas that help us to be able to yeah like to to kind of un uh, break the cycle of that bad stress or that unhelpful stress for us what are some of the things that we could be practically doing to become more aware of that yeah one of the one of the big ones we talked about in reset was to understand what your body's doing at certain times um and we, we came up with a thing called catch weight and reset and catch is to catch the physical symptoms that you're anxious or that you're nervous or that you're worried about something. And we all have different ones. Um, what would yours be? Shane, uh, what would yours be? I, if, I love this question. because it's the first I, physical sign that you're, that you're feeling stressed about something. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a few for me. And this, this, is, this year has probably come, brought that a lot into more reflection for me. Earlier on in the podcast, I caught up with Alicia McKay and we both shared about our journey with anxiety and mental health and some of the symptoms that came up for me. For me, there's always an immediate feeling in my chest, like that that real tightness that comes in my chest or that sinking feeling in my mm-hmm. stomach. Those are two early ones that I can pick up on. Um, the others is, is that I find that I, I over-breathe, which is, sounds like an interesting thing, but because I over-breathe, I end up taking too much air into my lungs and it creates this shortness of can breath. You, can you tell me which part of your lung you breathe into? In well, that situation, I mean, most of the time I recognize no, that, that's it. A really as, weird it is a weird one. Yeah, I find it's it's up the top, and I, so I don't breathe in through my like I don't feel my diaphragm. It's more like chest breathing rather than diaphragm diaphragm breathing, and yeah. so I I feel like I'm short of breath, and um, it's not yeah. because I haven't had enough breathing. It's because I'm kind of almost hyperventilating in that. So a couple of kind of quick um, you know triggers for me. 
Yeah, that, well, that, one, that one's a really interesting one, the fact that you feel like you're shortness of breath but you're breathing quicker. If you imagine your, your chest and your lungs are almost like a, an accelerator and a brake, if you're breathing into the top part of your chest, it's almost an accelerator and it's like firing up your sympathetic nervous system or your fight or flight stuff. So if you want to go into a football game, it'll be like... <sighs> And your big breaths up to the top part of your chest or when you're really anxious, like you were saying, you're breathing in these, these top parts of your chest and that's actually firing up your stress system. Mm. Um, breathing into the bottom part of your chest actually is that diaphragm breathing that you talked about before. And we have 610 muscles in our body. One of them has a direct line to our hypothalamus, which is a part of our brain that's like the EA of our brain. It does all the automatic stuff. Mm. All right? So it's like the... The EA of your brain. And if you breathe into your diaphragm, so breathing so your stomach's coming out, that's like pushing the brakes of everything. Your vagus nerve has, is about 80% um, afferent, so it goes up to your to your brain. And I'm, I'm nerding out a little bit now, but is that okay? No, I love it. I, I think people listening to this will <laughs> okay. love it. So so what happens is if, if one of the things I do in, in our workshops is I ask people, if you had a button on the back of your hand that you could press when you get anxious, would you press it? <laughs> Probably a thousand times Hell a day. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, you'd be giving it these times. <laughs> like at the traffic lights, trying to get the lights to change quicker. But your diaphragm is like that button. If you can breathe slowly and deeply into your, your, your diaphragm, into the bottom part of your chest, and then concentrate on your exhale, that just that sends a message straight up to your brain to say, look, there's no tigers. We're chilled. Relax, man. Bob Marley's here. Everything's <laughs> cool. Just chill out and we're okay. But that same thing, if I take a couple of deep breaths, if you take a couple of deep breaths into the top part of your chest, it has the completely opposite effect. It actually fires you up and makes you more anxious and more nervous. Yeah. So to be able, so the way catch, weight and reset works is catches the physical sign that you're getting and yours would be that knot in your stomach or that tightness in your chest and that then becomes a cue instead of just sending you into a shitstorm of, of anxiety and worry that's your cue to then get curious now we talk a lot about triggers for anxiety you would have heard that expression before yep and i hate that expression it's it's absolutely terrible if you pull the trigger on a gun how much control over that bullet have you got once that trigger's been pulled mm, none None. You got none at all. And we're using phrases like that to control anxiety. So all of a sudden you've got that knot at the top of your chest. And if that if you think of that as triggering anxiety, you don't ever have any control over where that goes from then. Mm. But if you use that as that same feeling at the top of your chest is now my cue to get curious. Mm. All right, that's my cue to get curious. Okay, cool. So one of the questions we use to get curious is is weight. And weight stands for what am I thinking? Mm. all right so what am i thinking why am i thinking it and is it helping mm. and there's something about those three questions that i really really love that just that i think one of the best things for anxiety is curiosity to actually just stop and work out how how am i being served how am i in this default habit loop that isn't serving me how do i get disenchanted with it and move on to one that does and that and using that that introspection is one of the things I've noticed doing work in schools and with kids is their introspection is terrible. They don't know what they're feeling. They're just feeling it and they have default responses. So to be able to teach them this is what anxiety feels like and let's lean into that and get a little bit curious mm. is a massive thing. It works really well. And then the reset part of it, so we go, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? Is it helping? And the reset's exactly like on the computer, the Control-Alt-Delete. What can I control? Yeah, and in the words of Marcus, oh, in words of Marcus Aurelius, waste no time on on things you can't control. Mm. Um, what can I change? So, what are my alternatives? So, control, alt, and delete. What things do I need to get rid of, and what thought patterns aren't serving me anymore? Mm. And it, it sounds a bit complicated, but to just go catch, wait, and reset is really, really quite easy. And the, all of the people. All my coaching clients who I've run it through and the kids that we've run it through at schools have been able to do that. And it's a way of connecting the smart part of your brain and the emotional part of your brain and keeping those two of them, you know, together to actually help you do what you're going to do. Oh, that's such, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to that and I like, 
I understand that kind of process, but that language around it makes it so accessible to be able to go, I could do that. I could show up to my, um, in, into my thinking and into my physiological responses with a little bit more curiosity to help me to start to, to recognize what's going on. And, you know, one of the things that I often talk about, I talked about a lot in Lead the Room was um, recognize your first and choose your second, which is so much of our responses that are that hard wiring into us is it's almost automatic, those responses. Some of those things like that, you know, those tree, no, those cues that you talked about before, those things that happen, you go, Nice I, I don't, there, mate. Yeah, I, I immediately caught myself because again, like you're right, they are cues. It's like, okay, it's telling me something, but I didn't choose that. So I didn't choose for my, my chest to get tired or I didn't choose for my, you know, um, stomach to drop in that moment, but I can recognize it. And once I've recognized it, now I can start to choose what I do with that. And, and sometimes I find, you know, people have public speaking, they go, I'm feeling a bit anxious around public speaking. And then they recognize that they're anxious and then they get anxious about being anxious. And so it just fuels mm. this kind of cycle. But if you can recognize it and go, why am I anxious? Which is kind of your language of like, what am I thinking right now? Well, my thinking right now, I can't stuff this up. I can't make a mistake. All these fixed and unhelpful beliefs, which is now how do I start to reframe that? Or how do I either start to um, find language or framing that's gonna be more helpful and more useful for me? So I think your language- What tools have you done for that? What, what tools have you done for that in the past? Like say you have got really anxious before you're going to deliver a talk. What tools have you used to, to get it back? Yeah, I mean, for me, ha- having a background, I, I mean, I did, I did counselling as my postgrad degree. And so I my a lot of the work that I did was in around acceptance and commitment therapy, which was I always loved going into, as a visual person, getting into kind of visual um, metaphors in my brain. And, and one of the visual metaphors mm-hmm. that we talked about was the movie theatre, which is that, you know, when you're sitting in the movie theatre, you're watching it play out, it feels disconnected and you can actually just observe the, the movie that's playing. But more often than not, as you know, when I get anxious, I throw myself into the movie and it becomes like, it's hard to detach from that. And so whenever I'm having these anxious but thoughts- But it's fun though. That's that kind of good stress. <laughs> that, that is, that's that. There's a, there's, a, there's a thing I talk about in Reset about benign masochism. You know, let's go watch Friday the 13th or let's go watch The Invisible Man or one of those really scary, and they're horrendous. You're knots or your stomach's in knots and you're, you're shitting yourself. You're hiding in the corner and it's all scary, but yet we love it because we know we're safe. And there's yeah. that, you know, people do it with things like hot chilies and roller coasters, even things like surfing. There's an element of benign masochism in there. I know I'm really, really scared, but I'm probably not going to hurt myself. Yeah. No, you can do um, it. I just find that I replay things that. over and over again. And that becomes the the challenging thing for me is like I replay unhelpful things. So I replay the movie in my head might be, you're going to stuff this up. People are going to laugh at you. This is going to happen. You become the predictor of the future that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, you replay the movie over and over again in a way that's not serving or not, not helpful for you. So I'm just trying to like mm-hmm. catch as many things that are not helpful and not serving me. Yeah. So what what you do then? We go went go back going back to those habit loops we were talking about. Your default loop was really worried that you're not going to do it as well as you could. Mm. What if the default your deliberate loop turned into I'm here to serve these people and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and they don't know how good I can be. They're only going to get me how I get me today. Yeah. But I'm going to go out there and my whole thing's going to be to serve them and to try and give them this knowledge that I've spent a lot of time, you know, procuring. And I'm, I'm going to go in there with a whole idea of how to serve. And then all of a sudden that you, you, can't, you don't really want to go from full on stressed out to calm. You just want to go from stressed to be excited. Yep. And I just go into that as I'm, I'm really excited to be able to go in there and, and share the reset message or to share the stress Teflon message. Yeah, you get up in front of a whole bunch of year 10s and that's scary, <laughs> that little bastard. I feel like if you, if you can speak to high school students and keep their attention, uh, then hats off to you. There is, there is no harder audience on the planet to communicate to. Yeah, well, apparently I speak kid, which is really good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but even that that sort of stuff. Yeah. If you get if you can sort of work out and it goes back to everything. This is the habit loop I've been going into worrying about that. But we need that bit of disenchantment. We need to be really self-aware to be able to sort of say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm gonna get disenchanted with that and I'm gonna do this one deliberately. If they like me, great. If they don't like me, great. Yeah. There's a really cool book that just came out recently called The Gap in the Game by Dan Sullivan and Ben Hardy. Mm. And there's that kind of, you, you probably heard this before, that we have this old version of us and this ideal version of us and we sit somewhere along that continuum. And the, the way um, Dan, 
um, Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy talk about it is that we live a lot of the time in the gap between where we are now and what our ideal is. All right. And what their, their idea was to, to live more in the gains. And it's not kind of looking in the rearview mirror and stuff, but building on the gains that you've already had. Mm. I think there's something really cool about that because then we're not coming from a place of scarcity. We're coming from a place of abundance. And we, we both have a mutual friend, Matt Church, and one of Matt Church's favourite line is anything you read or anything you learn, yeah, have one, in one pen write yes and and one write yes but. Mm. And my yes and at the end of the gap in the game was how can I close that gap? How can I close that gap between where I am now and my ideal? And I just used the word gap and went with gratitude, gratitude for where I am, for what I've learned, for what I've been through. You, know, you, you, you do that and there's a whole bunch of animosity and things just goes away. Mm. Acceptance that this is where I am. Some of these things are good, some of these bad, however it turns out. If my talk turns out great, great. If it doesn't turn out great, what am I going to learn from it? And the last one is purpose. And so we kind of have this idea if I'm right on where my ideal is, I'm not going to actually thrive and I'm not going to try harder. I'm not going to grow. But if you've got a purpose, you're still going to do that anyway. Mm. So if we can do that, if we narrow that gap with gratitude, acceptance and purpose, then all of a sudden we're doing things from a place of abundance. We're doing a thing as a place of I'm, I'm enough mm. and my self-worth isn't depending on how well this next talk goes. I'm going to go into this next talk trying to give these people as much joy and as much happiness as I can find and teach them some tools like catch weight and reset. But if they don't like it or if they don't like me, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. There's an acceptance to that. And it's, it's I'm not saying for a moment that it's easy, but it's certainly a lot easier when you have the awareness to try and do it than if you don't do it at all and you just go into a into these spirals of nervousness and, and shit yourself. So Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could chat about this all day in terms of the the topic and the conversation because I feel like it's real and it's and it's current for people. And people who are listening to this right now are going, okay, like there's some practical tools. Normally I would I would try to land the podcast on this place where we really put it into practice and make it applicable. But I feel like you've done that throughout the whole thing, uh, throughout the whole podcast, just having a conversation about making it real. So there's tools people can use to, can to I take do away. one more? Then? Yeah, please do. I, I, I know we're probably short of time, but the last one is just be really deliberate about the stories you tell yourself. Yeah. Yeah, we're making shit up about ourselves and our place in the world all the time. And if you're going to make shit up, you might as well make up shit that helps. Yeah. All right. And so often the time we're not making up stuff that helps. And you've got to catch that too. You've got to catch yourself making up bullshit about yourself that's just not serving you. If there's another thing that's that's equally as truth and equally as real and is actually helpful, let's go with that. You know, we, we kind of we kind of treat the, the stories we tell ourselves as being gospel and they're not. We're making that shit up. So if you're going to make up stuff, make up stuff that helps. I'm not sure if you saw Adam Grant posted something recently, which I absolutely loved. He said, imposter syndrome is a paradox. Other people believe in you, but you don't believe in yourself. And yet you believe yourself instead of them. He said, if you doubt yourself, shouldn't you also <laughs> doubt your judgment of yourself? He said, when multiple people believe yeah. in you, it might be time to believe them, <laughs> which it just reinforces that yeah, the most really... the most impactful stories are the stories that we tell ourselves, right? Yeah, they are. And any, anything Adam Grant got, writes, I'm just like, you know, Rethink was one of the greatest books I've read. I've read it three times now. It's one of the best books you'll you know, think again. Sorry, not Rethink. But his high, all of his philosophies, originals was magnificent, give and take. You see that everywhere in your world once you've read. Yep. You can't unsee that <laughs> once you've read that book. Yeah, you know, he's just he's just a master of all of that sort of stuff of understanding sort of how we're thinking and, and whether our thinking's helping or not. So it's a good question. Out there, but we've got to we've got to look at them. We've got to look at them for, with a curious curious sort of thing. And so, what can I what can I take out of that? How can mm. I learn? And yeah, I think curiosity is a superpower, man. It's curiosity and stress—they're both a superpower. That if we can um, learn to harness both of them in unison, I think we can do some really cool shit. Yeah, I mean, talk talk to me. Maybe just one last thing. I mean, it might just be some advice that you give to people, or it might just be a big idea. But I, I want I want you to start with. You said like stress is a superpower. Like I, I'd love you to speak to that for a second, and then maybe just leave us with one one piece of advice or one piece of wisdom that you'd love to to kind of share around the idea of stress. I, I think that the stress is a superpower. It gives you energy. It fires you up. It it, it it makes you want to accomplish things. And if we don't, if we spend our life dodging it, we spend our life dodging achievement. We spend our life dodging joy. We spend our life dodging fulfillment. 
and we get we might get comfort. And if you want comfort and that's your end goal, you'll get it. If you if you have a stress free life, you might be able to be comfortable. But eventually, you're going to get uncomfortable with the comfort. So if we can stop and just embrace the challenge and look at it as a challenge, that fork in the stress road, to sort of say, okay, this is a challenge. This is uh, William Irvine wrote a really good book called The Stoic Challenge. And, and his, his way of looking at it was every time something bad would happen, it would be like, okay, the stoic gods are throwing a challenge at me. And I love that idea too, that like, okay, am I up to this one? You bet you are, big fella. Let's go. Let's go do it. Mm. And there's something really cool about being able to reframe frame whatever it is as a, as a challenge rather than a threat. And I think when we do that, we rise to those challenges and then we get the joy from, from accomplishing the things that we want to accomplish. And there's something awesome about that. That's why it's a superpower. Because if we try and avoid stress and look at it as bad, we're not going to do those thriving things, those things that actually make us work harder to get where we want to be. But do it from a place of I'm okay here, but I still want to get there. I still want to. I still want to get better, and I still want to improve. Rather than, you know, that top of the mountain syndrome where I'm only going to be happy once I get to this. I think that's something that we all fall into the trap of a lot, and just. Yeah, we're mixing metaphors, but we just get on that train and that's where we go. So to actually stop and embrace the, to have it as a superpower, we've got to embrace the fact that it's the thing that gives us the energy and the drive to actually you know, achieve the things that are hard because anyone can achieve the things that are easy. Mm. Oh my gosh. Luke, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. There's been so much gold in here and people can get a couple of, a couple of copies of your books. Um, Stress Teflon, it's great being you when stress doesn't stick and your new one, which is Reset. Is it reset? Reset. Yes. Both choose of them a story. You can download. You can download them directly from lukemathers.com.au. Um, you can get them for free. Uh, you can, if you want a hardcover, you can buy them on there too. But if you want a, a PDF of them, they're all yours. Particularly if anyone's got parents of teenagers or have teenagers, get a copy of Reset. Everyone who's reading that, and it, it's written by myself and a teenager, so it's got, you know, it's it's really it's like a lot of the stuff we talked about today, but. Yeah, you can read it in an hour and in that hour you'll have some tools that you didn't have an hour before so it's amazing and that's it's a book it's a tiny little book and i'm super proud of it and i'm super proud of ali my co-author who i wrote it with you know she lost her best friend to suicide and was brave enough to to come to me and uh, come with me along this journey and write this book and yeah that's just an exception you look at stress being a good thing that would have been so stressful for her yeah but she did it and she she's come up with a fantastic book. So Yeah, massive shout let's out to her. What an absolute that. Let's legend. embrace some of that hard things. Yeah. And what's the best way for people to connect with you? If they want to learn more about you speaking, coaching, uh, how can they best connect with you? Uh, LukeMathers.com.au is, um, yep, you can find just about anything you want to find on there and lots of things on there that can, that'll uh, send you anything you need to do with me. So yeah, jump on there and, and have a bit of a look and yeah, let's make stress a, let's make stress not stick. Yeah, I love it. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, Luke. Pleasure, brother. It's been fun. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.